Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are going to be talking about money, about the European Union's attempt to agree a new multi-annual financial framework, which is bringing out many of the worst characteristics of EU member states, is leading to an almighty bust-up, and is not only dividing European countries, but is also raising fundamental questions about what Europe is for. One of the big questions is whether Europe really wants to be a geopolitical actor on the world stage. To help us make sense of this, we have analysts from a lot of the main big blocks that are active in this debate. ECFR's co-chair and the director of the Europa think tank in Copenhagen, uh, Luca Fries, is joining us where she can give us an insight into the frugal four, those who want to keep the budget down. She's just returned from Brussels where she was covering the, the summit meeting in real time. From our office in Berlin, we have Jonathan Hagenbosch, who can tell us why Angela Merkel is so upset with the way that the discussions running at the moment. And from Paris, we have Pavel Tsarka, who can tell us about the, the Friends of Cohesion, not only telling us about where the French are, but also given the, your Polish heritage, maybe you can also talk a bit about how these debates are seen in Central and Eastern Europe, as well as in other countries. So, Luca, do you want to start off by telling us what happened, why it was impossible to do a deal and what the stakes are, really? Well, one will have to say that it was a summit where there was not really a lot of action. I think the uh, Prime Minister of uh, Portugal, Costa, uh, put it in the following way, that you cannot make an omelette without X. And there were basically no X around in Brussels uh, in terms of having a compromise proposal. So what happened was that simply because you could say that uh, there was not the willingness or the sort of sense of urgency to agree upon something right now, you simply just had the various camps uh, positioning themselves and, and more or less uh, digging them into the various uh, trenches even more than before they came. So do you want to explain what the... Tre- so the, the reason there's a problem is partly because the... Britain's leaving, which means there's a 16% hole in the budget. And there's this kind of argument about whether the EU budget should be cut underneath 1% of the GDP of the remaining EU. And what are the main areas? Do you want to lay out some of the main areas where, where the trenches are being drawn? Well, basically, one will have to say that these are some of the most difficult negotiations that we've had so far on the EU's finances. And as you rightly point out, I mean, one of the problems is that we have Brexit. So certainly we have lack of money because uh, Britain was a net contributor to the budget. But then at the same time, we have all these new issues uh, that the EU wants to deal with, migration, climate change, and obviously also defence and foreign policy as such. But that puts us in a situation where somebody has to pay more into the budget and there's no one around who's actually willing to do that. And that's where you see sort of the camps being sort of very, very strong at the moment with the so-called frugal four. That is, at the moment, it's uh, my own country, Denmark, it's Sweden, it's Austria, and it's Netherlands. And then on the other side, you have the uh, so-called friends of cohesion uh, with uh, around 17 countries from uh, Central and Eastern Europe and, and Southern Europe. And the core problem here is that you have absolutely no sort of uh, friends of research, friends of climate change, or friends of, you could say, also geopolitics. So these issues are more or less orphans uh, in the negotiations at the moment because everybody's focusing upon either sort of cutting the budget or maintaining the budget. That is a core problem. So, Pavel, you've been spending a lot of time looking at where all the different member states are on, on these different issues. Where, how do you see things moving at the moment? 
Just to add that another big difference this time around uh, compared to other budgetary negotiations in the EU is that I feel that there is some disillusion with how the enlargement process towards the East and South actually happened in, in the European Union. So while the logic of the previous big budgets was that we should help those other new European Union members to become like us and to, to become better integrated with, uh, with the rest of the European Union. This is no longer such an easy case to be made vis-a-vis -vis, uh, national constituencies in, in Western Europe. And therefore, we see some kind of a temptation to bring the EU budget back to the West and uh, no longer reward uh, Eastern uh, countries for just being members of the EU. I find this uh, argument very simplistic, by the way. I'm not just uh, a friend of cohesion because I'm Polish, but actually I, I believe that there are some, a lot of simplistic uh, messages taking place in this debate. To start with the fact that actually when, thanks to cohesion in, in the Central and Eastern Europe and in the South, actually other member states from North and West are are benefiting uh, a lot. So the fact that, that it's so easy to fall into the trap of dividing Europe into the net beneficiaries and net uh, payers uh, is the result of, of a practical fact that uh, most of the contributions to the European budget are still coming from national contributions rather than from Europe's uh, uh, own resources. And therefore, it's easy to, to feel that some countries are paying while others are receiving. Uh, the, the argument that actually everyone is benefiting thanks to a generous European budget, uh, is something which is frequently mentioned by the countries taking part in this group of friends of cohesion. But it's uh, so just to underline that, that there is a, a logic be behind such an argument. And how much is at stake in terms of the size of the contribution to public spending and investment in countries like Poland and Hungary and other member states that are in the friends of cohesion? As far as I remember, so in, in the first... 15 years of Poland's membership in the EU, it was something like 4,000 euros per, per citizen that, that, that Poland benefited from, from the European funds. But there are other calculations saying that for every euro spent in uh, new member states, if we still consider them as new, there is another euro and 50 cents coming back to, to Western Europe. Coming back in what, in what way? Coming back in the sense of mostly trade, increased trade uh, uh, within the single market, but cohesion within the European Union is beneficial for, for such a trade to flourish. And of course, those calculations would be even bigger if you uh, included in the calculation the fact that uh, large amounts of, uh, of qualified workers from, uh, from Central and Eastern Europe and from the South have uh, contributed to GDP in other Western, Northern uh, European member states. And there's some Polish politicians who claim that they've been educating all of the workers in, in Britain and in other countries for free for many years. So they should get a rebate for their contribution to, to the human capital of all of these citizens who've gone to work in other member states. Jonathan, you're sitting in Berlin where Angela Merkel apparently has been complaining about how childish uh, Mark Rutte, the prime minister of the Netherlands, was in the meeting. He came along with a biography of who I forgot who it was of. Do, do any of you remember? Said he was going to get a lot of reading done. It was wow. about Chopin, at least I remember that. Oh, yeah, Chopin, exactly. But also, um, you've been looking at some of the impact on the foreign policy front, because there's a, a temptation, if the budget is cut, to take it away from things which are maybe a little bit further from public consciousness in different areas. Unfortunately, a lot of the geopolitical things seems to fall into that category. 
Indeed, Mark. And then for all the talk that's about a geopolitical, you know, Europe and commission and European sovereignty strengthening, that's quite um, quite worrying. But I'll start with just an, an addition to what Lika and Pavel have been saying. What, what also makes this process so difficult is that there's been a reversal on, on how the EU is, uh, wants to decide on its um, MFF on the budget. And that it used to be that um, you needed a qualified majority to block the proposal, but now this time member states wanted to take more control and now you need a qualified majority to actually approve it. So that makes it much harder because member states at the same time are divided. And that brings me to Germany and Germany's stance. So before the summit, as you said, Merkel was was not happy at all. Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, was not happy at all with where things were going. Um, the proposal that Charles Michel, president of the European Council, had put forward was, in her view, was one, too much, too big. <laughs> um, so there was too much money. And to illustrate that, what the Germans tend to say is, you know, they're not just the biggest contributors to the budget, but look at the, uh, they will they would say, look at the exact numbers. Uh, their contribution as of right now, as things are standing, is 25 billion. Uh, and compare that to the second biggest contributor, which is France, which is only 9 billion. So that's something where Germans point to and where they want to um, make sure that they're, they keep their rebates and where it, that, that it doesn't get more, even more. So in the beginning, Merkel sided with the Frugals and Mark Ritter as well, but then apparently um, he went too far <laughs> with, the, with the biography that you mentioned. So the Germans would, would say their, their stance is more differentiated and they're more in between, and they actually put forward a joint proposal with France what they want is, that gets to your third question, what the Germans are saying is, you know, you have we have these three blocks in the budget, so agriculture, structural funds, and then kind of new tasks, strengthening the EU, um, making it uh, more geopolitical and, and protecting its sovereignty, be it investments in tech, be it on military things. And that's where where they say, so if we go above that 1% of GDP for the budget, then we need to justify it because it's investments into the future. That's kind of their differentiated sense on it. But looking at it, let's take military mobility, which is basically funds that the EU gives to build infrastructure for our militaries and tanks to go east in the case of a Russian attack, which is highly important. There are doubts that um, Europeans would even come to the rescue of Eastern European states. And this is a, would be a way, by putting money into that, of showing at least some, you know, proving to Eastern Europeans that um, there's some credibility behind it. And originally, the Commission proposed $6 billion for those funds. Then came the Finnish proposals of the Finnish Council presidency. They went down to 2.5. Um, in the Michel proposal just last week, it was 1.5 billion. And now the newest uh, version says there's zero money for, for that. So no military mobility advancements and improvements. So that's just one example. And where, you know, if we talk about European sovereignty and putting some actual resources behind it, things aren't looking great. And what about the European Defence Fund? That was another of the big areas which which the Juncker Commission was pushing, which was meant to be transformative. Yeah, yeah, very similar. In terms of numbers, also there where we had originally, there was 13 billion planned, then we went down to six. Michel put it back to seven. 
this was meant to be, you know, the game changer of European defense policies and where at least it's going to be significantly reduced as things are looking right now. Because on the one hand, the Frugals and also Germany don't want to put too much money in, into the budget. And then on the other hand, no one wants to cut back on agriculture or structural funds. And so it's it seems that in the end, things like agriculture and structural funds are more important to the to the negotiators, to many negotiators in any case, then it doesn't seem that like the EDF is is at the heart is you know someone's real cause and and in doubt one would rather secure other benefits. Yeah, that's what you were saying, Luca. They're no real friends of the future. Yeah, exactly. The future is an orphan at the moment. Uh, one will have to say. And if one looks upon the proposal that uh, came the second day at the summit, it was very interesting in the sense that it was actually not really a proposal. It was more a technical paper, and it was uh, produced by the commission. And once the commission had produced it, and one could also see these various cuts. And then uh, Charles Michel, the uh, president of European Council, declared that one was not able to agree upon anything when then... The commission sort of immediately sort of sent out these messages. This was not a proposal by the commission. It was simply just a technical paper because obviously for the commission, this must be a, a huge problem. I mean, wanting to have sort of a more modern European Union with strong sort of digital sort of future with also investments in research, innovation, and particularly also a strong sort of policy with regards to, I mean, defense and, and also the overall uh, sort of uh, foreign policy in general. There one would simply have to say these are the areas which have been cut. And uh, if one wants to follow sort of the measures by Joseph Borrell, um, one would simply just have to say, well, if you want to be a player, you have to pay a price. And no one at the moment apparently is willing to pay that price, at least not in the first round of the negotiations. Then one will have to see once there is a new summit whether things will change. But it is extremely worrying, for instance, with regards to France. When I heard Emmanuel Macron, the president, and also before the meeting, the um, Minister of Europe of France, there was a lot of stress on aquaculture. I did not really hear lots about uh, the issues that Jonathan just mentioned about uh, military mobility, European peace facility, and so forth. If I can react as a, as a friend of cohesion to, to all of this, because I think that this argument is... Some arguments are lacking in, in, in the discussion so far. So two of them. First of all, the common agricultural policy. A friend of cohesion would respond that there is a certain illusion around uh, and, and misperception when we are saying that this constitutes such a big part of the European budget. What I mean by that is that this is a policy that, that is, has been moved to a to the community level. That's why it's called common uh, agricultural policy. Whereas with most other areas where Europe would like to uh, cooperate and uh, invest in, there is plenty of investments still happening on the national level. So it, it's, a, it, it's an illusion to say that, look, that agriculture is such a big priority and other areas are not at all a, a priority. Simply, the, the fact that it constitutes such a big part of the of the budget is, is a result of moving it to to the community level. And then another argument that you would hear in France and in in Central Europe and Southern Europe uh, among uh, friends of cohesion is that things like climate change or innovation should be thought of uh, horizontally, meaning that they could just as well happen within agriculture. And actually, there are, uh, to a large extent, already happening in the agricultural policy, which has changed a lot over the past cu couple of decades. And it's not no longer just about subsidizing uh, Europe's rural uh, citizens, but it's actually about uh, the transformation within, within the uh, agricultural uh, policy. There, there needs to be another discussion about how far this should go and what should be its goals in order to make it fully aligned with the 
climate goals of the European Union, but it would also be simplistic to see climate innovation as an alternative to uh, agriculture uh, policy and the other way around. I'm glad you're taking your role as a friend of cohesion so seriously, Pavel. But can I? That can was we, my goal. <laughs> can we go back to one of the things you talked about earlier, which is this kind of general sense of frustration with Central and Eastern Europeans in Western Europe? Because in Berlin, there were high hopes of using the negotiations around the European budget as a way of introducing some political conditionality on the rule of law and trying to push back on some of the behaviour shown, particularly by Viktor Orban, but also by the Polish president and and government on rule of law issues, as well as trying to encourage greater solidarity on refugee issues. How is that feeding into this debate? I think that the main argument that you would hear from Warsaw and other countries of Central and Eastern Europe, that if there were to be such an instrument of conditionality, It would have to be fair in the sense that all European member states should be able to be subjected to it. Whereas if we talk about making the use of cohesion funds or agricultural funds conditional on on whether the country respects the rule of law or, or not, then it becomes it leads to a situation when, where you can, in a, in a way, punish those countries which really are recipients of those funds. And therefore, you assume that only those countries can actually uh, become problematic. Whereas other countries, which are net payers, which are from Northern and Western Europe, however you define it, who are not beneficiaries of, of those funds or not to a large extent, they cannot be punished in case something uh, bad happens to their rule of law. In the sense, you assume that nothing bad can happen to their ru- uh, rule of law at home. And another argument that you would hear from Warsaw in particular is that apart from rule of law, you have other systemic problems which also might need to be tackled by the European Union. They explicitly mention Netherlands, which by the uh, European Parliament has been flagged as one of tax havens within the European Union. Why shouldn't uh, countries like tax havens within the EU uh, be sanctioned for being those tax havens? And and perhaps we could even think of of an instrument which would... uh, put countries in line, both on rule of law and on cases like that. That's You sound like uh, President Macron. I'm sure he'd be, he'd be very happy on both of those. But I don't know if Luca or Jonathan want to come in. You've both been uh, following the German and other debates on these issues. There's another argument that uh, people here would probably hear or that they mentioned that they hear um, from East, Eastern Europeans, and that is that there may be different visions of how to organize uh, democracy and should it be liberal democracy or should it just be democracy that could be not non-liberal or... A different liberalism. So that's, I mean, that's, I think to, to, to people in Berlin is, is very difficult. And what they say is, is clearly, apart from the innovation side of things, if you want to go above 1%, then we need to put some rule of law conditionality somehow in there. But my feeling is that um, in the end, probably the EU's Handlungsfähigkeit, Mark, one of your favorite German words, capacity to act uh, will be more important uh, in the end for the Germans. So, I mean, they won't risk uh, risk that in, in any case. In any case, in, in Warsaw, there is some openness towards this uh, topic and much depends on how such a rule of law conditionality would look in practice, whether it would be easily politicized or whether it can be crafted in such a way as, as to make it 
more fair in when, when this conditionality uh, is used. And just to be clear, I'm a big supporter of the EU's role in respecting rule of law in, in member states. I feel that this is indeed an o- opportunity to introduce such an instrument, but the devil lies in details. Your commitment has been noted. Luca, why don't we give you the last word? Why don't you tell us how this is going to end? I think what's really interesting about sort of uh, the last part of it uh, that we just discussed about the rule of law there during the summit suddenly something sort of strange happened in the sense that where all the journalists are sitting suddenly you had Victor Orban going down speaking to journalists which has apparently not happened for the last many years in Brussels so everybody was expecting well wow what will he say now but uh, what he wanted to say was that he wanted to have a budget which was 1.3 percent of, of the overall sort of EU sort of um, GDP so for the first time you have an alliance between uh, Orban and the European Parliament but that was was a rather unexpected one. So I'm pretty sure that's not going to end up with the 1.3. But I think what Charles Michel has to do the next couple of weeks is basically start sort of the process with regards to consulting one more time. Because for me, there was no compromise in sight uh, whatsoever. And obviously, every country now has to go back and think. And also the various camps have to go back and think. And everybody has to move because otherwise you will not have a compromise. And I think when one looks upon it, I think also the frugals, in particular also Denmark, but obviously also Sweden and the others have to think about the fact, well, if we end up with a budget where basically we cut all the issues that a country like Denmark has been very interested in, such as climate, such as research, such as innovation, digitalization, I mean, how will that look like and how will then the EU be able to perform in the future? But that's obviously very difficult to make a compromise like that at a time when the negotiations have basically not started. So the question is, how long time will this have to go on for? Uh, unfortunately, my prediction will be it could be a rather sort of long-drawn process, and then we end up with delay because well, then you're not able to program the various sort of uh, policy areas of the European Union, and then you end up with a, a 2021 where you don't really have money to spend, and that is obviously a dilemma. So lots of opportunities to have more podcasts on the European budget process. Thanks a lot to all of you for helping us uh, understand it a bit more clearly, and we will definitely return to the topic when people are willing to move again. I think we've got one more thing to do on this podcast, which is the bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Luca? Well, two books. I mean, being the co-chair of ECFI, I obviously have to read uh, books by fellow co-chairs of ECFI. So I'm reading Carl Bildt's new book, which is in Swedish. So that's also very good. So I have to sort of uh, try to see whether I can still understand Swedish for, our, for <laughs> those that are listening in here. It is it is a bit difficult still sometimes just to understand all the Swedish words, but I can more or less understand most of it. And it's called The New Age of Disorder. It's basically Carl Bildt's sort of big expose about how the world has developed since 89. So it's a pity it is only quotation marks in Swedish. But I'm also reading another book, I'm read- if I'm allowed to say that. I'm reading um, a graphic novel by Ken Grimstein. It's called The Three Escapes of Hannah Arendt, which is a fascinating book by basically using graphics, explains national socialism, her life, her sort of also her philosophy, her, her affair also with uh, Heidegger. So it's an absolutely sort of must read uh, for many people. It's only the second graphic novel that I read. So for me, it's also a new adventure. Wow, that's amazing. Pavel, what are you, what's on your bookshelf? Yeah, I'm reading very slowly the longest book of the Nobel Prize of this year, Olga Tokarczuk, the Polish writer. Uh, and the book is called The Books of Jacob. I started already before she got the Nobel Prize, and it's essentially a, a book which you can read 10 pages every month, and this is still fine. A story about a Jewish sect, but happening 
on the periphery of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth three centuries ago. So I'm now checking whether I will be able to finish it by the time the European budget is uh, agreed or who will be the first one, yeah. <laughs> Maybe Mark Rutter will take it along when he's finished his Chopin biography. Jonathan, what's on your bookshelf? I'm actually reading a book about money as well, but not about MFF, but about currencies. It's called Exorbitant Privilege, The Rise and Fall of the Dollar. It's slightly old already because it's five or six years old by Barry Eichengreen, professor of uh, economics at the University of California. But it looks at the role that the US dollar plays in the international economic and trading system and whether there might be a decline on the horizon or not. Okay. Wow, that all sounds great. And I'm going to nominate a book that I can't actually understand, but I feel obligated to do it, which is your latest book, Looker, which I think should be given some publicity on the podcast. In fact, both of your books on 1989 and on the end of Merkel, which seems to be quite a, a topical uh, issue. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours and giving us a rating or review on whatever platform you're using to listen to us on. We will include links to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Luca Fries, Jonathan Hakenbosch, Pavel Terka and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Hannah Bowman and our editor is Marlene Riedel. Thanks a lot, everyone.